Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm a sub-deacon. Joining me is Liz, the shrub-deacon. I'm in charge of trimming the holy topiaries. Sadly, Danny was not able to join us this time. We'll all miss her. Our book this month is Small Gods, wherein a deity needs to learn humility, and his believer needs to learn the opposite. Unlike most of the books when I like initially checked them out, I didn't immediately read like the back cover of it, but mine has like the cute little turtle on it with the eye patch. And I was like, okay, this is going to be like a- about a minor turtle god or something, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not far off. With that, let's get into the trivia sent in by the secret extra sister from her summer home in the abandoned temple of a forgotten theocracy. Published in 1992 and coming in at just under 84,000 words, Small Gods is the 13th Discworld book and the second to not be part of any subseries. The country of Omnia is presumably named after the prefix Omni as in omnipotent and is modeled after a combination of ancient Jerusalem, the Vatican, and the inquisitions of medieval Europe. The history monk Lutze is named after Lao Tse, one of the founders of Taoism. And speculation along the same lines has led to the theory that Brother's name is meant to be an interpretation of Buddha. Meanwhile, the name of the philosopher Didactylos is rooted in the Greek word didactic, meaning to teach, but can also be translated as two-fingered as a reference to the rude gesture commonly used in Britain. And of course, Galileo Galilei is credited with coining the phrase, and yet it moves, as a response to the religious authority demanding he recant his assertion that the earth orbits the sun. And in this story, that phrase was adapted into our sign-off, the turtle moves. Small Gods was translated into German and Dutch in 1995, French in 1999, and Lithuanian in 2011. Ranked number 10 in the 1993 Locus Awards for Best Fantasy Novel, 102nd in the Big Read Survey, And in 2011, NPR put it at number 57 on its list of the top 100 sci-fi fantasy novels. The audiobook, read by Nigel Planner, was published in 2003 and lasts nine and a half hours. Speaking of audio, the open-source audio and quoting format Forbis is named after the main villain of the story. BBC Radio 4 adapted the story in 2006. Ben Saunders and the Durham Student Theatre brought it to the stage in 2011. And in 2006, there was a graphic novel version illustrated by Ray Friesen. Did you have any first thoughts before we dive into the summary? I struggled the entire book and was constantly flipping pronunciations umbrella. I was also calling him like Bruva sometimes, and I never like settled on one. <laughs> I was, this is like the first time I'm really saying it aloud, and now I'm like, okay, I just need to pick one. <laughs> The story starts in the desert land of Omnia, as a tortoise is dropped by an eagle into the compost heap of the citadel garden. There, that tortoise meets the novice, brother, and reveals itself to be his god, Om. Let's talk about these two for a minute, because more so than any other Discworld book so far, Small Gods is a story defined by its characters. We definitely get a few characters who are have very strong in in your face personalities, like Granny Weatherwax. But it definitely feels like a lot of the protagonists of the books are fairly like kind of placeholder characters. Brother seemed unique, and he very much like stood his own ground in that kind of way. I'm not much of a religious person, so I think this is probably part of why I feel that way. But 
brother is somebody who's very much like led by his faith and not necessarily what he is told to believe, but just what he believes. And so there's that like disconnect between me and that character. And I don't think that's a bad thing because it's very interesting to see a very religious character who's religious in this kind of way. And what about Um? Um, I think was funny, but I definitely don't think he always shined as brightly as brother did. He had like a lot of really good comedic moments and he's definitely like through a good portion of the book, the like levity of it. But he is definitely just like he he's the side character in this. He's not the main character, so he doesn't get as much of a stage in it. What are your thoughts? It's funny. Last time we made an Emperor's New Groove reference, and this time we've got an authority figure transformed into an animal relying on the assistance of a peasant. <laughs> it's fate. It all just worked out. <laughs> Brother is the product of the civilization that raised him. Devout, humble, uneducated, but not stupid. By contrast, Om has a much better handle on what the rest of life is like, but he's completely wrapped up in his own ineffective rage, at least at the start. He's gone so long without actually interacting with the people who claim to worship him that the actual belief is entirely drained from his religion. Uh, Stop me if this doesn't make sense. At least to my mind, Brother has no ego. Neither in the pejorative term, meaning inflated self-importance, nor in the outdated psychological usage to mean the you that experiences and reacts to the world. At the start of the story, he's basically a blank slate with nothing to define him except sincere belief in his god. Now, in contrast, Om, at the start of the story, is basically nothing but ego. It makes for an interesting contrast as we see the two learn from each other and grow in an arc way more clear than a lot of the ones we've seen. Brother definitely has like, I think a very like traditional like hero of a thousand faces kind of story arc. And it's a little bit refreshing to see as much as I love like Pratchett's books and all the Discworld books so far. It feels a little different than some of them where it's like things are happening, but not necessarily the character is experiencing any change. Because like some of them come to mind and it's like, yeah, a bunch of things happen, but they're the main characters essentially kind of who they were at the start of the book. And I don't think that's always a bad thing. I don't think characters always need to change because sometimes the story is how they interact with the world. So fearful of this strange voice coming from a tortoise, Brotha runs to his mentor, brother Numrod, <laughs> who proves unhelpful. Meanwhile, in the torture pits of the Omni-Inquisition, the head Exquisitor is speaking with a former member of the church. Throughout the land, someone has been spreading heretical ideas. Namely, that there are other gods besides Om, and that the world is not a sphere, but a disc carried through space on a giant turtle. When questioned about the conspiracy behind these preposterous lies, that heretic responds with, The turtle moves. Head Exquisitor Vorbis contemplates these words. Any thoughts on Vorbis? He's a very sharp villain. He is very much to the point, and he is threatening, but not in a, like, I don't know how to put this. He's one of those villains who is a villain because he believes so strongly that what he thinks is right that he will do anything to make sure other people see it's right. And those people are, like, actually genuinely super scary. He believes that he is right, and therefore whatever he wants is correct. 
But yeah, either way, I think Vorbis is a really strong villain, especially because we get to like see him and Brother interact so much in this book that it's very interesting to see them play off of each other. So my favorite approach to discussing villains is framing them in terms of their relationship to the protagonists. In this case, Vorbis shares Brother's focus on the church and Om's sense of importance, but what he lacks from both of them is the ability to grow and learn from others. He, like Om, is completely wrapped up in his own head and experiencing the world from that disconnected divine perspective. But in a human, that's horrifying. Mm -hmm. And the culture of fear and unquestioning obedience around him means that he is unchallenged as he enforces his cruel mandate on the world. Yeah, Vorbis's greatest weakness is his inability to see outside of himself. Vorbis consults with several other important members of the church to discuss political matters. They talk about Brother Murdoch, an Omnian missionary to the land of Ephib, the ancient Greece analog we saw back in Pyramids. Brother Murdoch was killed by the Ephibians, so Omnia has been waging a glorious and a triumphant holy war on the heathens. Now the church is sending someone to parley, and Vorbis steps up. After consulting with Brother Numrod, Vorbis chooses Brother to come along as his assistant, because despite his lack of skills and talents in virtually everything, the boy has an impeccable memory. I feel like maybe at the start of the book, Brother's memory like wasn't as obvious, and I don't feel like it necessarily came as obvious until that conversation between Vorbis and uh, Brother Numrod. I feel like it could have been shown a little bit more clearly. Maybe, and maybe I just missed it because I wasn't looking for it. Yeah, the the opening scenes with him are very much about establishing his relationship with the church and the conversations with Om. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of room in there for demonstrating his memory powers, but there probably could have been. Yeah, and I feel like maybe just like him telling a little anecdotal story about when he was a real young kid would have like completely served that purpose Mm. i don't think it like the story is worse off because it didn't get mentioned sooner but i was just kind of like oh i didn't know that yeah i definitely agree so talking with om brother begins to have a mild crisis of faith his entire worldview is founded on the idea of om as an omniscient being constantly watching everything that happens and devising torment for sinners But this tortoise doesn't recall any of the laws attributed to him by the prophets. He doesn't care what people do with their day-to-day lives, and his attempt to smite Bratha with lightning barely registers as a static shock. Yet Om does manage to dredge up a guilty secret from Bratha's mind, and confronts him with the time he wished his grandmother was dead. Unsure what else to do, Bratha resolves to keep and protect this tortoise. Also, Alm's behavior in the opening scene really classifies him as a... We don't swear on this show. If we did, I would. (laughs) I think that's fair, yeah. (laughs) It makes a useful bit of personality that Brutha kind of lacks at the start. Yeah. It's a heaping dollop of of feistiness. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to put it. (laughs) Meanwhile, meeting in secret places below the citadel... Members of the Chelonist conspiracy discuss Vorbis's mission to Ephib, which they know is home to the author of the book De Chelonian Mobile, where they learned the forbidden truths about the world. 
One of the conspirators, General Frit, is going to be joining the delegation as Vorbis's bodyguard. He plans to rescue the author and bring him to Omnia to lead their revolution. However, Vorbis enters the general's chambers later that evening and relieves him of duty. <laughs> this leads to one of my favorite scenes in the book where the general kind of wakes up in death and what he sees is this a desert at night and all you can see is sand and death is there and he asks if he needs to cross the desert and the death says yes and he just feels very comfortable and confident I feel like and just begins to cross the desert to meet his judgment and I think this is really interesting because it kind of shows, I think it's one of the earliest indicators of what you believe in might, hold on, let me think about how to phrase this. I think what you're getting at is the way that your belief shapes what actually happens to you. We try not to do too much calling back to previous books in each episode, but it's <laughs> useful. This was something that came up, especially in Eric, that was explicitly stated that hell on Discworld is populated only by people who sincerely believe that they should go to hell. Yeah, and he still believes in that iteration of the afterlife, and so that's what he gets. And this is something also that came up in the Witches Abroad episode, that we're starting mm -hmm. to see a series of what I guess I, we could call puzzle deaths, where there's a, a slight twist on what's been sort of established as just the memory of the person hanging around for a few moments after their body dies, before fading away. We'll come back to that point at the end. With Om tucked away in a basket, Brutha sets out to meet Vorbis. Along the way, he stops to say goodbye to Lu Tsi, the elderly gardener, and, unbeknownst to Brutha, one of the history monks, an order dedicated to the careful observation of time. Before he can leave, Lu Tsi shows Brutha something truly remarkable. Some people have bonsai trees, but Lu Tsi has bonsai mountains. I feel like there's an untapped Etsy market here somewhere. <laughs> you know, I did try to make bonsai mountains in Minecraft once. Uh-huh. <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> Pretty okay. I couldn't get the snow to not melt because oh, I was trying yeah. to do them in too warm a spot. And I, what I really needed was a way to stop the saplings from growing. Oh, yeah. Because... <laughs> When they're just planted, they look like tiny trees. Mm -hmm. Mine was also like significantly larger in scale than Lucy's. Yeah, which I imagine were probably just like palm-sized mountains. Yeah, like Brother holds one in his hand. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my favorite lines in the book is that the mountain weighs thousands of very small tons. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is a scene that stuck with me. And for a long time, I wasn't able to articulate why. What I've mostly settled on is that by showing Brotha the mountain, and especially by letting him feel it and experience it, Lucy is planting in Brotha the seed of perspective. It's a little push towards accepting the idea that not only is there a world outside of what he's been taught, but that world is full of strange and beautiful things worth protecting. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. I hadn't thought about it, and I thought that was kind of just like, oh, it's a cute, funny scene. But yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Vorbis, Brutha, and Om take passage on a sailing vessel, along with a guard who introduces himself as Sergeant Simony. As a school of porpoises joins their journey, 
The captain lets slip a superstition that the animals are the souls of dead sailors. For that, Vorbis has the captain kill one. This scene is a really good indicator of the belief that will come up later as well, but that people need things to believe in. And maybe it's not religion, but those little things that help you make sense of the world are good. They give you like a, a grounding spot, you know? Mm-hmm. And Vorbis's like disapproval of that and belief that there can only be one God and that's the only thing you can believe in is incredibly reductive and that's what leads him to dismiss it and then punish them for believing that. Reductive is a great way to put it. The cruelty that Vorbis demonstrates, both in physical harm to animals and emotional harm to people, is an important point in Alm's character growth. Vorbis, like I said, is acting like a god, utterly without sympathy for living things. And in doing so, he's prompting Alm to recognize how horrible he had been. And he's also embodying a version of the church that Brotha has spent his whole life serving. Mm -hmm. A vision of it so repugnant to Brotha's own sense of morals. Yeah, because even in the like little snippets where we hear a brother talks about his childhood, it's never like framed in a positive light. It is very much framed as the things that happened to him were horrifying and awful. Vorbis kind of is representative of those things. He is the distillation of everything wrong with what the Omnian religion has become. Mm-hmm. Yes. Nothing of what they are comes from Om, as he says. It's all the result of people using their religion as an, as a foundation for power and cruelty, basically, is what gets implied. Yeah. The ship is beset by a storm that threatens to drown everyone on board, but Om bargains with the Queen of the Sea for them to be spared, though he knows that there will be a terrible price. Answer the uh, Thanos meme. (laughs) How much did it cost? A boat. Mm -hmm. Just a boat. (laughs) A small price to pay for a boat. (laughs) Soon enough, the ship arrives in Feed. Brotha learns about the Ephibian way of life, where most of the population are either slaves or philosophers. It's interesting the way that Ephib is structured in this story, because it's pretty much just intended to be what we would probably consider normal. They're called slaves, but they're basically just employees. Yeah, like they have days off and they make money, and I think the idea is that eventually they pay off their debts so they can actually live after a while, which is not very far off from the truth, unfortunately. They're using terms that we would associate with horrible things for stuff that we have grown accustomed to. And on the one level, that could be a way to demonstrate how much worse life is in Omnia than Brotha and the rest of its citizens recognize. And it's also kind of an indictment of our contemporary culture. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily frame either as good when it calls it what it is. (laughs) The narrative sets us up to be rooting for the Ephebians and everything, but maybe it's just me bringing my outside perspective into the story that there could be something better than this. Yeah. Shortly after arriving, Vorbes and Brotha are brought through an elaborate labyrinth full of twisting corridors and deadly traps, whereupon they emerge into the Ephibian palace. There, they meet with the tyrant, and Brotha realizes that he has been fed a pack of lies about Omnia's war with Ephib. Omnia was dealt a crushing defeat, 
And in fact, the death of their missionary, Brother Murdoch, was orchestrated by Vorbis to provide an excuse for the war. I think this comes to one of the more interesting discussions that comes up in the book about what is truth? Is it what people decide is truth? Or is there like an actual real truth? And I think the answer kind of falls somewhere in the middle. It's like history is written by the victors. And so while that may be true, as far as all the history books and stuff are concerned, it's probably not 100% accurate. They say history is written by the victors. In fact, it's actually just written by one victor. Specifically, Victor Oladipo, shooting guard for the Indiana Pacers. <laughs> mm -hmm. And also, there's some sort of truther joke in here, but I'm gonna ignore it. Yeah, that's alright. I think you are onto something a little bit with the idea of disparity between consensus-based truth and objective truth. And that's a way more concise way to put it, the rambly mess I gave for it. <laughs> it's a collaborative thing, as is being. I think that's one of the things the book kind of wants to point at, too. Like, you can be, but can't really be unless there you, like, have a relationship with people. And I think the story does very much come down on the side of belief. What we believe as true is powerful, but it needs to coincide and, like, or build upon what we observe. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right on that. At Alm's request, Brutha takes him into the city using his gift of memory to flawlessly navigate the labyrinth. Oh, before I forget, uh, do you know the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? Is it that the, like, a labyrinth, the, like, center is kind of the goal, and it's not just, like, getting out of it to the other side? Well, what I was told the difference was, is a maze has dead ends, but a labyrinth doesn't. Huh, okay. I did not know that. <laughs> Which actually makes the labyrinth significantly harder to navigate, because you can get lost infinitely. Yeah. You can't do the, like, maze trick where you just stick to the right wall. I've got a story brewing that heavily features the difference as a thematic element, but, like, that's not important right now. <laughs> this all sounds really neat. They meet a gaggle of philosophers, and Brotha learns more about gods. Eventually, they meet Didactylus, the author of De Colonian Mobile, as well as his engineer nephew, Urn. They talk for a while and discuss the true nature of the gods. They are beings fueled by belief. They create institutions such as the church to increase their number of believers. But eventually, all the belief goes to the church, and the god fades, fades away. away. The reason Om is so weak is Brutha is the only person in the world who believes in him. I was really surprised that this was like a point that the book wanted to make, because I... I think it's very much true in the real world kind of sense because, I mean, I know countless Christians who, like, don't necessarily really believe in God. They believe in the institution. They believe in the community that they have around themselves. God's just kind of the afterthought. God is the, the impetus for the structure, but now the structure is what they want. That's a great way to put it. Soon thereafter... Vorbis has Brutha lead him out of the palace and to the city gates, where an Omnian army is waiting to ransack the city. Vorbis puts Didactylus on trial for spreading heretical ideas and demands that he take them back, which Didactylus does without hesitation or struggle. This reaction takes Vorbis by surprise, and Didactylus uses the confusion to escape. Brotha finds Didactylus and Urn in their library, arguing over which books to take with them as they escape. They are joined by Sergeant Simony, 
who reveals himself to be a member of the Chalinist conspiracy. Knowing that the library will soon be burned down, Brutha offers to take the entire thing with him by memorizing it. Together, they all leave through secret tunnels to the dark side, <laughs> where Urn hid a mechanical boat that they used to escape. <laughs> Good callback. <laughs> this scene's a lot of fun because it's we're kind of getting these different viewpoints of players coming together where we have uh, Simone like very for this movement, Didactylus who obviously kind of started it but doesn't really care, and Brother who's just kind of along for the ride. He still like hasn't quite worked out what he believes in yet, but he knows that saving the library is what's right. And just for the sake of completeness, and for the benefit of anybody who might have read this book first and not known what was going on in this particular moment, there's a callback to Guards Guards. All libraries everywhere are connected, and the Librarian of Unseen University rescues many of the books from this burning library. I really enjoy that scene because I think Pratchett really gets that there's something kind of intangibly valuable about libraries. It's not just that they have books, but there's something that like connects them all together, and it's the value that they have, uh, the value of like providing knowledge and creativity and just like a place where that's protected you know i think i want to say that i saw this quote like on um, hank green's twitter before anywhere else libraries are important because they're like the one place where they value you more than your money yeah and i've got a lot of like warm and soft feelings for libraries oh big same <laughs> I've got I, I read this book earlier this year called The Library Book and I can't remember who it's by, but it's about the LA library fire that happened in like the eighties where two million books were burned. And it talks a lot about how much work goes into preserving those books and why that's valuable and it's I don't know, it's just it's it's sticking with me in a, a, a new kind of way. And of course, the scene of the librarian rescuing a bunch of books from the burning library of Ephib is catharsis by proxy for all of the nerds who care about the burning of the library of Alexandria. Because people assume that that's what caused the Dark Ages and everything. Yeah. When, in fact, all the books had copies made. That was like a big function of the library. But like, that's another time. Yeah, that's a big, long story with a lot of components to it. But it's still really interesting. As they flee, and as Vorbis commandeers a warship to pursue them, the Sea Queen returns for her price. The storm she raises hits the mechanical boat with a bolt of lightning that sends Brotha and Om flying off of it, and the remaining passengers careening off into the sea, and the storm incidentally wrecks Vorbis's warship as well. Brotha, Om, and Vorbis wash up on the vast desert between Ephib and Omnia. Slowly, without much hope, Brotha journeys towards his homeland. Despite Alm's protests, he refuses to abandon Vorbis, who has been reduced to a vegetative state. I think this like signifies a really like big shift in Brother's character. He, I think more so now than before, starts to do what's right because he just feels that it's right, even if he doesn't necessarily like know why. But he's making a very conscious decision to do that even if it doesn't necessarily make sense. Absolutely. He's becoming defined by himself rather than the ideas and instructions of those around him. 
And especially because he sticks up to Ohm because Ohm is like, just leave the guy. But he's like, no, I am doing this. This is the right thing. You're right. It's definitely a pivotal moment for the character. He spent his whole life being defined by his religion, and now he's acting against direct instructions from his god. Because like, he's been skeptical of Om for a lot of it, but I think at this point he does definitely believe that this tortoise is Om, and despite that, he is using his own judgment. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that. I'm mostly just restating the thing that you were saying, but lo- longer and worse. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. But I think the point about him believing in Om, but choosing not to follow him is a big part of that change. And also, I don't know how much it actually affects the story, but having all of those books of the library is affecting Bratha as well at this point. It goes on about the knowledge itself is like leaking into his head. He's knowing things without really having learned them, which is an interesting, weird effect of the Discworld's way of being. And so there's a statement to be made about education giving you the ability to rise beyond being obedient to to influences around you. I feel like that could have been codified in the narrative a little bit more if that was meant to be a major point. But I think that it's an interesting aspect. Yeah, and I think it kind of relates to the thing that, like, it's easy to be good if it's easy to be good. It's hard to be good if you have to, like, really work for it. And the, like, knowledge that Brother gains by, like, remembering the library is him kind of, like, I think experiencing that it's, it is hard to be good. But he's gonna do it anyways. Yeah, I was mostly just thinking along the lines of, like, if some aspect of the knowledge specifically helped them in the desert, like if he was able to recall some factoids about a specific plant or something and use that to their advantage. Yeah, and I think it comes up at one point where he can like name a plant or something, but I think that's like it. This scene is also a major trial for Om. He's trying to help his last believer survive in the desert, and it's difficult for him. Especially because he's fending off swarms of small gods. I don't know that we've clarified what they are. It's basically like they're disembodied minds on the same level as like bugs or whatever. Like they're capable of very small amounts of influence. And every god on the disc starts out as a small god, but they accumulate followers and belief and become more powerful. That's how it all works. Just like clarifying that for the sake of listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good to include. I don't know if it was in this spot or exactly where else it was. I know it's a Discworld quote that deserts are a breeding ground for religions because when you're up against that vast expanse and looking up into the empty sky, there's a natural urge to put something in between you and it. Yeah, I don't know if that like explicitly comes up, but I do think that like ideas around that kind of come up. And also, I want to bring in one other thing that I saw referenced in a book about the difference between Western and especially Middle Eastern fairy tales. Like, a lot of um, Western fairy tales, like Hansel and Gretel and stuff like that, the impetus for the story is the main character getting lost in the woods, especially. Mm -hmm. Whereas in more Middle Eastern folktales, it's about the main character choosing to go out onto a journey. Huh. Because it's a lot harder to get... To, to accidentally get lost in a desert. If you start out in a desert community, then to leave that community has to be intentional. Yeah. Whereas it's so much easier to just misstep into something in a more forested region. Yeah. 
I think that makes sense. The degree of intentionality definitely, I think, informs what Brutha is doing at this point in the story. That's for sure. <laughs> Meanwhile, Simony, Didactylus, and Urn miraculously survived the Sea Queen's assault and have found their way back to Omnia. Didactylus is dismayed by the way that Chalonists treat his work like scripture, when it's all just fact and doesn't need to be believed in. As the philosopher talks, Simony meets with Urn to discuss the possibility of turning the mechanical boat into a war machine. I think Didactylus's like explanation that what he wrote is it's just facts is really interesting, but I wish like that might have like come up another way later too, because it very much is like he's like this is fact, it doesn't need to be believed in, but people believe in it, and I don't know if it, something about it just that didn't feel like the end of it, you know? Definitely see where you're coming from. It feels like it didn't quite coalesce into the main narrative, like in a super satisfying way. Yeah, especially because he clearly was like fighting so hard to get that point across. I definitely agree. Just trying to think of a way that it could have been done. Yeah, and like as I'm thinking about it, I'm not entirely sure, but I don't just like reading this, I was like, oh yeah, that was like a thing that happened, and that was like a big deal for him. If there was a way to more meaningfully illustrate the disparity between believing in something and just acknowledging that it is fact. Yeah, especially because like belief is like the like idea that the book is like kind of built around discussing, like how do, how do fact and belief like coincide? Back in the desert, Brutha and Om have a brief encounter with the mad hermit Saint Ungulant. Not long after that, while Brutha is sleeping, Vorbis wakes from his coma. He promptly bashes Brutha in the head with a rock and carries the unconscious lad back to Omnia, with Om helpless to do anything but watch. I was like kind of expecting a scene like this to happen, but I still was like not ready for it once it had. Yeah. I'm going to say a word and, like, you tell me if I should cut it. Okay. Vorbis is just an unrepentant tool. <laughs> I think that's all right. I <laughs> it's not a swear, but it's not a kind word, but I, I, I think it, it works. All right. A week later, Brotha wakes up in the Citadel. Vorbis has been ordained as the new prophet of Om and is preparing a horrific new campaign of torture and warfare. The centerpiece of this is an iron turtle upon which heretics will be roasted alive. There's an interesting little aside where Bratha realizes that Vorbis is scared of him and of the facts. Yeah, that's a good point. So that is a part of where fact and belief clash within the narrative. Especially because like, the truth here has like so much weight and consequences for Vorbis. He has attained power despite the facts, but he still feels that there is a fundamental instability to the truth that he has constructed. Truth, in air quotes. Yeah, for sure. The Chelonists begin their uprising with the unveiling of the war machine, but Lutzi sabotaged the device. It falls apart, and the church guard arrest the revolutionaries. In the public square, Brotha confronts Vorbis about his lies and deceit, but the new prophet simply orders the guards to strap Brotha into the Iron Turtle. Outside of the citadel, as armies gather from various nations that Omnia has been fighting for centuries, Om has one last desperate plan. 
he presents himself to a passing eagle, who swoops down and carries the god into the sky. But far from giving in to being dropped on the rocks, Om cranes his neck up and bites the eagle square on the cloaca. <laughs> Om steers the eagle to the citadel, just as Brutha declares to Vorbis and the crowd that God is coming, Om has the eagle drop him directly onto Vorbis's head, cracking his skull. This is like a really like gnarly scene. Absolutely. Yeah, like viscerally, it's like it, it doesn't hold back from describing like the fact that like Brutha's like being like cooked alive and then that Vorbis is head just gets smashed by a turtle it, it was just like i definitely don't think it was like out of place because this scene had like a lot of weight to it but it was still just like it was very real the spectacle of the tortoise dropping onto vorbis creates a massive surge of belief from the crowd and um rises more powerful than ever like the moment when that happens in the text is real strong yeah, I this entire like section is just very like impactful, I think. It employs some of Terry Pratchett's trademark messing with the typography. Yeah, I, I I thought it was really neat because it feels like a good callback to like how religious texts are written. Yeah, absolutely. With the the Roman numerals starting each sentence that Alm speaks. I was like reading it and I was like, okay, I just like I need to finish this. I need to get through this. I need to figure out what's going on. Om frees Brutha and gets set to smite, but Brutha says no. No more smiting, no more religious mandates, no more violence. He is going to bring peace. It's a humor thing that the same formatting for religious texts like starts out like saying proper things, but as Om is talking with Brutha, it becomes very much less actual stuff you would see in real Bible quotes. For sure. And I think it's a good indicator of how brothers impacted him and made him just like a little bit more human i say no it's also just the way that the writing style is for the everything mm -hmm. in these stories it very much undercuts the gravitas yeah because it very much becomes like two people bickering about where they're gonna go get lunch <laughs> on a road trip or something at the core this is a humor novel but it, even if it's about very serious things brutha talks to the leaders of the amassed armies they consider his viewpoints, but are reluctant to abandon their plan. Then, the supercharged Om makes his way to Cori Celesti, the Mount Olympus of the Discworld, and he bullies the other gods into appearing on the battlefield <laughs> and ordering everyone to stop fighting. <laughs> this scene's very funny, especially because in the other Discworld books, the gods are usually depicted as, like, apathetic, but still, like, all-powerful. But here it's like, they're very much put in their place by Ulm. Well, I mean, when you've got one all-powerful being up against another all-powerful being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Ulm definitely strikes me as a god who goes for the vulnerables, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're probably pretty right there. <laughs> Thereafter, Brutha is made the head of the Omnian religion and sets about reforming the church. Didactylus and Urn find new work in Omnia while Simony remains a firm atheist. Lutzi returns to the history monks and reports his failure to ensure the passing of the proper course of events, wherein Omnia wages war for a hundred years. Eventually, Brutha passes away, and he, like the other characters who died in this story, finds himself in an endless desert. Death tells him that at the end is judgment. 
to which Brother asks, Which end? And with that, he walks into the infinite. It feels very, like, poignant and, like, it's very, like, sure about itself. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it just it is what it is, and I don't know, it feels really strong. A conclusive conclusion, you might say? Yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. <laughs> so, that was Small Gods. What'd you think? I thought it was great. I, I think this might be my favorite of the Discworld books so far. It's certainly one of my favorites of the whole series. Yeah, and especially because, yeah, it is a humor book, but it, like, it doesn't hold back from, like, really talking about things that aren't super funny, like belief and the, like, abuse that institutions of power can, like, cause. And I don't know. It's just, it really stuck with me. And it's, like, pretty similar in length, I think, to a lot of the Discworld books we've read really recently. But I feel like I just, like, tore through it reading this in my evenings and then I was like oh my gosh I am like halfway through this book and at the same time a lot happens in it like yeah it's it's like it's a lot I especially feel like that's true for the last half of the book and like not every single detail gets explored to its fullest extent but I think that there's so much packed into this story Mm -hmm. you have to appreciate it I think it's one of those like strongest books I've ever read It's definitely like super high up on that list of like, just like excellent pieces of literature. So now that we're at the end, let's return to the point about character arcs. When thinking about this subject, I'd like to recall a piece of writing advice I got. A character is defined by their decisions. In this case, Om, who loves smiting and war and violence, grows enough through his exposure to Brutha that he decides to enforce peace. By contrast, Brutha's exposure to the cruelty and pettiness that Om demonstrates a lot, mostly in the first half, is what gives him the backbone to define his own moral compass, rejecting the idea of following orders in favor of deciding the right action for himself. Both of them find the thing that they most reject embodied in Vorbis, who doesn't really grow, as we see in the scene where he looks at all of the care and hard work that Bratha has done for him and completely negates any goodwill that he may have earned because the first thing that he does when he has the strength is something that Bratha refused to do. That moment is especially jarring because it's the first time we see Vorbis actually do anything violent. It definitely exposes that core of cruelty that's been central to his character. Yeah, because the book makes a point to say that Vorbis doesn't necessarily, like, he doesn't kill people, he doesn't torture people, but he convinces other people to do it, and he makes them like himself. And that's a big part of why he is an evil person. But i also like to emphasize that this story is not an indictment of religion or spirituality. Rather, it's saying that belief and obedience are two very different things. One strengthens while the other diminishes. Yeah, it feels like it takes a very like thoughtful approach to dealing with that. It comes back to that core idea where I think Pratchett really believes that people need something to believe in. So people choosing to believe in a god is not a bad thing. Perhaps, but at the end of the story, I think Brutha believes perhaps less in Om and more in himself. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Because adhering to something outside of your ideas is fine so long as you have the sense of your own ideals and your own moral compass to be able to examine and judge what other people are telling you to determine for yourself if it's correct yeah 
I just really like this book and these books. <laughs> I know. It was, like, insanely good. So, let's get into some housekeeping. We are on the social medias. Twitter, Tumblr. We've got a Facebook page now where I'll be posting all of the links to the new episodes as well as the favorite footnote poll and occasionally other stuff. Discord is where we do a lot of the chatting with fans. I say fans as if we're like celebrities or anything. <laughs> Lots of cool people in there. It's definitely worth joining if you got the time. Yeah. And we're not like, we're not so active that you're going to miss out on stuff if, you, if you're not checking it every minute. But it's pretty chill. Yeah, it's definitely one of the like least overwhelming group chats that I'm a part of at the moment. And we've also started up a Patreon. If you could find it in your heart and your wallet to give a little bit to make sure that the show keeps going. I'm in a not great financial situation these days, so anything you could spare would help. And starting now, each episode we are going to be giving a shout out to one of our Patreon supporters. This episode supporter shout out goes out to Robin, who said that I didn't have to try and pronounce their last name. <laughs> so thank you, Robin. <laughs> yes, thank you, Robin. Liz, would you be so kind as to read off the favorite footnote? Yes, uh, this time's favorite footnote was, Words are the litmus paper of the mind. If you find yourself in the power of someone who will use the word commence in cold blood, go somewhere else very quickly. But if they say, enter, don't stop to pack. That's it for this month. Check your local library for the next book in this series, Lords and Ladies. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.